Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Okay, this this was um, in the uh, this was linked in, in yesterday's email. Buddhism has adapted to various cultures within a framework of each culture's belief and held views. I believe that the difficulty that many Westerners have had in integrating the Dhamma is in attempting to develop an understanding of the Dhamma from the perspective of an unfamiliar culture, and that was true and is true in every modern Buddhist practice that I encountered. Uh, I was always, well, I wouldn't say forced, but that was how it was presented to me through the, um, the coloring that each culture might have had, beginning with um, you know, the, the ancient uh, influence of Confucianism to, to Chan. And um, you can even see a theory between Chan or, or Zen and uh, Korean Zen or Shon um, and, uh, and almost the severity of how the teachings are presented. And you can also see this, the same in the, the different um, Mahayana schools that went through Southeast Asia with that route uh, and using those cultures as an influence. And me as a Westerner and other people as Westerners were uh, taught to first be um, of that type of mind and then to engage in whatever that Buddhist practice. And that even goes back to uh, Meizumi Roshi um, who uh, brought uh, so-called Zen Buddhism to the West and led to um, some difficulties and some wonderful gentlemen. I knew John Lord for many years, um, but still influenced by that, by that culture that it passed through. And it was never... Um, I don't want to say watered down for Westerners, but it was never understood that we're teaching people that are now much more pragmatic. Um, and then there was a lot of struggle in, in um, doing something that is almost impossible, making believe that you are a completely different culture. And that's what I saw that people had a lot of difficulty in. But anyway, that's, that's part of it. Um, and then continue, as Buddhism moved to the West with a much more pragmatic view of the world, many Westerners attempt to integrate the teachings and the cultural influences already present. With no perspective in which to understand these cultural influences, great confusion has arisen. This has led to the original teachings to be shrouded in mystery, hidden behind dogma and ritual, and lacking the context in which the original teachings were presented. The Buddha didn't intend his teachings to be useful only for those with the right lineage, the right karma, the right teacher, the right empowerment, or the right social position, or the right culture. Although all of those were called qualifications in all the different schools that I came across. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> The Buddha taught a simple and direct path to developing lasting peace and happiness and continuing calm abiding. This teaching is, is accessible and understandable to anyone 
who takes to the Dhamma wholeheartedly. And by that, I mean, um, once you begin your Dhamma practice, that you keep it pure um, and as taught, because anytime we add anything or distract anything from this Dhamma, it's just, it's lost, it's gone. In this study, there will be no analysis of magical and mystical non-human concepts, nor an attempt to prove the validity of the Buddhist teachings within any tradition that developed after the Buddha's death. I will explain terms as I understand them and as supported in the Pali Canon. This 17-week, 34-class of curated sutras, sutras will provide a gentle, gradual, and easily integrated review of jhana meditation in the context that Siddhartha Gautama originally intended. I will by necessity and intending right speech show where adaptations and accommodations to the Buddha's original teachings have occurred and become generally accepted as Buddhist teachings. I intend no disrespect to any tradition, school, or Buddhist religion. I intend only clarity and, and a useful Dhamma. I hold great reverence for all of the various Buddhist religions schools that have developed since the passing of the Buddha. Many people have found meaning and purpose through these individually and culturally influenced adaptations. The Buddha taught freedom from the delusion of stress and the underlying unsatisfactory of life common to all. He taught that liberation from ignorance of four noble truths, human awakening or true human maturity, full human maturity, can be achieved in this present lifetime. In this present lifetime, that changed everything for me once I understood that because everything else was taught that, you know, kind of like be a good boy and do these things right. And in a future lifetime, you'll get some kind of understanding or awakening. And that was always disappointing. Um, and when I, when I found that that wasn't what the Buddha taught, that he taught how to awaken, how each and every human being could awaken, gain full human maturity, right here, right now, provided that they prepared their mind for that moment, and anyone can do it. I have found through my own direct inquiry that the teachings of the Buddha as preserved in the Pali Canon and restored to a useful and useful understanding. I'm sorry, <clears throat> eyes are getting a little screwy tonight. I have found through my own direct inquiry that the teachings of the Buddha as preserved in the Pali Canon and restored to useful and understandable form are most effective in developing the Buddha's stated purpose. In the Simsapa Sutta, the Buddha teaches a purpose, describes the teachings, the purpose of his teachings, the Buddha's words. And what have I taught? I teach the nature of dukkha or stress and suffering. I teach the origination of dukkha which is craving for and clinging to views rooted in ignorance of those four noble truths. And like the Buddha says, I teach that cessation of dukkha is possible. That is a, a, a teaching on impermanence. If things weren't impermanent, we'd, there'd be no way to change our minds. We would be, we'd be locked in, a, in a, a view that is just prone to suffering. The Buddha realized that that's not true. Then the Buddha says, I teach that the Eightfold Path is the path leading to the cessation of dukkha. And then he concludes that by saying, this is what I have taught. And then he says, and why have I, why have I taught these things? Because, because they are connected to the goal. They relate to the rudiments of the mindful life. These teachings develop disenchantment and dispassion. 
These teachings develop cessation of stress and unhappiness. They bring calm and direct knowledge. These teachings develop self-awakening, right? We do this ourselves. We become rightly self-awakened as Siddhartha Gautama did. These teachings develop self-awakening and unbinding, unbinding from what? Unbinding from views, clinging to ignorance of Four Noble Truths. This is why I've taught that. Taught that. Therefore, your practice is, is, is contemplating and understanding. This is stress. This is the origination of stress. This is the cessation of stress. Your practice is contemplating and understanding. This is the path of practice leading to the cessation of stress. That's the end of the Buddha's words. This gentle review will present jhana meditation within the context of an ancient and profound teaching known as the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are the Buddhist teachings on the underlying unsatisfactory nature of human life and the cause of unsatisfactory experiences. By developing understanding of the unsatisfactory nature of life and the cause of all stress and unhappiness, a life of lasting peace and happiness can be developed. Uh, I'm gonna stop there and we'll, we'll begin um, jhana meditation. And the reason why I did that kind of as a, the preamble to jhana is, is to lead into this jhana meditation that um, we've all done except Paul. Um, and the, you don't need any more instruction than what I'll give you uh, in the guidance here. Um, but be a little bit more mindful of um, maintaining the right method. When you find that you're caught up in a thought or a feeling or a thought attached to a feeling and emotion, we take a breath, right? And in the next moment, we might be caught up in a thought or a feeling or some kind of thought jagged. It might last for minutes or two. Just come back to your breath and be mindful of both components because jhana meditation is not just breathing. It's using your breath to deepen concentration. And every time you recognize that you're caught up in a feeling or a thought or a thought attached to a feeling and come back to your breath, that's deepening your concentration. So both components are part of jhana meditation. And I say that because many people can get upset with themselves or upset with the practice itself because they have to keep doing it. But remember, every time you do it, you're deepening your concentration. And you're also interrupting that ongoing process of ignoring a mind rooted in ignorance. So jhana meditation provides that ongoing interruption in a most directed way to your mind being stuck in ignorance. And this is why the Buddha taught it. And so now off our cushions, as we deepen our concentration just a bit, we can recognize that's what's happening off our cushion and interrupt in the moment as it's happening in the middle of our life, that ongoing ignorance rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. And so, as I say often, there's no Dhamma practice that we can practice yesterday and there's no Dharma practice that we can practice for tomorrow. Dharma practice can only be practiced right here, right now. And that's why we, we use jhana meditation because that's how we get there. All right, let's begin. So we will med be meditating for 30 minutes. If you find this overly uncomfortable, come out of meditation and sit quietly until you are ready to resume. Remember, this is not endurance practice. Now is the time to meditate. Now is the time relaxing your thoughts, remaining mindful of the arising, 
and the P, and it's a good idea to remind ourselves these common hindrances. Everybody has them, but they can take us out of our Dharma practice if not being mindful of them and not let them uh, overwhelm us. And then um, if you have any comments you'd like to make on our 30-minute meditation, please do so. And if you'd rather outside of class, I'm always available to you. Um, and so whatever you'd like to talk about tonight related to uh, tonight's little introduction and your experience, um, but also, you know, most importantly, how do you, how do you find the method? And is it uh, something that you can engage with easily? And also, again, this is not, um, I don't mean this to check up on you, um, but if you're meditating twice a day, every day, because that's the important thing. So the 30 minute meditation we do here in class um, shouldn't even be seen as a goal. I've been meditating for at least 200 years and my practice is 30 minutes twice a day. And I find that to be more than enough to maintain my practice. Um, the Buddha never set a time frame on meditation. He never said, you know, if you've been meditating five years, it should be two hours a day or anything like that. He just said, go find the root of a tree in an or an empty hut and do jhana. Um, so what's most important is that jhana meditation be practiced twice a day, uh, every day. And again, shorter sessions are much more preferable um, if you can do that twice a day than one long sit, um, even if it's an hour a day, every day, or even, you know, some people tell me that, well, you know, I meditate for four hours on a Saturday and that just won't do. It's not jhana practice. It won't lead to consistency and it won't lead to that um, 12 hour interruption of our own um, entangled ways of being in the world. I was speaking with someone earlier um, about the first and the second set. The second set is more difficult, but they realize why, because they're already you know, in their day and uh, that's a distraction. So that's why we do that. You know, usually for most people, the morning sit is the easiest um, simply because you're already not in your day, but the second set seems to be most difficult. Um, and again, if you can do those two meditation sessions approximately 12 hours apart, that provides a nice um, break, you know, an intentional interruption to a 24-hour day. So um, I'm going to go um, online first, uh, but nobody has to speak. Remember that it's up to you if you want if you want to say anything or just maintain noble silence. And uh, well, and. Does anybody mind if I put them on camera? And it's okay if you're if you don't go on camera. I can just keep it here. Paul, what? You're fine being on camera. Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? I need to have you. Tracy, how are you this evening? I'm glad you joined us. I'm well, John. Thank you. Um, yeah. So this is my first time sitting with the group at night. And I have to say it was much more difficult than Saturday morning. <laughs> um, I think on Saturday morning, I shared with you that I experienced a moment of, of peace and happiness that did not happen tonight. <laughs> um, and I think that the big takeaway from this meditation for me was just um, 
I think at, at a certain point in the meditation, as I kept trying to kind of go back to the breath whenever I felt discomfort, which was quite a bit, I had this realization of the, um, the first noble truth, like very directly, uh, that like, this is, this is suffering. Like I didn't, I didn't ask for this. I didn't ask for these thoughts. I didn't ask for this discomfort. I didn't ask for any of this and here yet here it is. Um, and so it was just kind of a momentary fleeting thought, but, um, yeah, it was hard. I almost, I think I stopped at the in the middle and opened my eyes and moved around and then got back into it at the end. But it was just a much more difficult, almost felt impossible actually, but. Well, you, congratulations for staying in it. And you did exactly what you should do. You came out of it when it became too uncomfortable and there will be meditations like that along the way. And I'm not gonna say especially when it's a, a second sit or later in the day, but the, that your our day certainly in, um, influence what we bring into meditation. And so genre meditation for you did exactly what it was supposed to do. It provided an interruption to that, um, to the stress you were building up just by living life. You know, the, the first noble truth is there is stress, there is dukkha. As a consequence of having a human life, there will be, but we don't have to compound it. You know, that, that. have you heard the Salata Sutta yet? I'm not sure. Um, on the two arrows. Um, oh, uh, through other people telling me about it, but not directly. Uh, if you get a chance, listen to it on the website, but it's just a Buddhist teaching on, well, not just, it's a profound teaching that again, as a consequence of having a human life, there's going to be dukkha, there'll be stress and suffering. But what human beings do that because they don't understand the nature of suffering is they take it personal. They stick the second arrow in, you know, Salata Sutta, two arrows, which simply compounds the suffering and continues the, uh, the eye-making or the, the selfing involved in that. Uh, so, you know, your, your practice is exactly what it is doing, what it should be doing is pro providing that interruption. And I think the more you um, incorporate the second sit, the, the more, I don't want to say su successful, um, the more peaceful they will be. But that just takes a little bit of time, Tracy. So, uh, I'm glad you joined us tonight. Do you have any other questions or comments? No, no, thank you. I'm good. Thank you. Great. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Dhamma teacher, Brian. Hi, John. Thank you for this. Um, I had a, that was a nice sit. Yeah, I, you just got to stick with it. And the, um, I think the, the second sit of the day for me now is actually more enjoyable. Versus the, the morning has become just kind of rote and a bit mechanical. And um, I, I guess I've done it enough at this point that I it's a little easier to concentrate during the middle of the day now, where I'm actually more awake and alert and present for the sit. Um, and so it's just, it's become more enjoyable over the, over the course of my practice. So it's just, as John said, just takes a bit of time and, and effort. So yeah, thank you. Thank you, Brian. Uh, let's get that other guy from Ohio on. 
Hello, Slav. Hi, John. Uh, my sitting was not too bad, and speaking of hindrances, I uh, was a little bit sleepy, but... You didn't okay. let it stop you? Huh? You didn't let it stop you? No, I have some technique uh, what to do with sleepiness. Uh, you open your eyes and go to lights, put your eyes, uh, uh, lights in your eyes, and it's, you wake you up, you continue meditate. <laughs> I like that. Thank you, Slav. Good to see Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you. How are you, Jane? Oops, there I am. <laughs> My internet isn't working tonight, so I'm I'm well, thank you. Um, I really look forward to my my second sit. It's just pe all peaceful. So, but it took a while. Yeah, and really, what we're you know we're talking about is is establishing that refuge of the Dharma, which Jana is certainly the. Um, the grounding of that refuge, isn't it? And it, it's good to look at it that way, to anticipate it as for what it is. It's a, it's a break from the world, you know, which the Buddha described as dukkha. So, it, it's that's the, the correct way to see it. You know, look forward to it. I, I mean, my, my days are just, you know, from the outside, most you know would seem just agonizingly boring, but. I still look forward to the second sit, not to get out of the boredom, but just uh, to, to just do it, you know. And, and um, I'm not so much escaping from the world uh, or entanglements of the world like many of you have to, uh, but I, I, I couldn't think of, I just couldn't think of a day going by without you know, a half hour sit. Even when I was in the hospital a few times, it was, you know, in my bed, but sitting. It's just a wonderful practice, and I, I, I feel so fortunate to have come across it and then be able to share it with so many wonderful people, like all of you, including, thank you, Jane, including you. Mr. Kemp. How are you, Jeff? Oh, and Deborah Kemp. The Kemp's are here. <laughs> How are you? Good, John. Hello, everybody. Um. Uh, I'm, I'm, we're, we're back at home after a week of traveling after the retreat. And yes. did you, so did you people know what you did right after the, that calm and peaceful retreat. I, I, you know, I might rethink that strategy the next time. <laughs> um, we went from complete calm and peacefulness to watching the fireworks in Washington, D.C. <laughs> it was quite a contrast. <laughs> um, and, and, and pretty difficult to try to maintain the morning sit, evening sit routine that I've become accustomed to. Yeah, sometimes you just got to throw your hat in the air and go for it. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but I will say that uh, I, I've developed to the point now where I can I can do five minute sits, or not even a five minute sit. I can just take a breath and remind myself that 
what's around me, what I'm experiencing, that the entanglements that are trying to draw me in are not me. They're not mine. It's not who I am. Just take a breath uh, and exhale and, re and remain calm. And it's, uh, it, it's, the benefits are amazing. Having said that, I'll be glad to be able to go back to my <laughs> morning sit and evening sit. Yeah. And just, by the way, the 30 minutes now is uh, much better for me than, than, you know, I started out maybe like most people with a five minute or a 10 minute. Mm -hmm. And 20 minutes kind of became my normal routine. Um, the 30 minutes is good for me. Uh, it takes me another, another level deeper, I think. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, like I said, I've been sitting 30 minutes twice a day for many years now. Um, but even, you know, and that routine stays the same, whether I'm teaching a class or not. In other words, on, on class days, I'm just teach, I'm just meditating, whatever that is more. But the 20 minutes, to me, always felt like, you know, <laughs> we should be doing a little bit more. But there was other considerations for it was time to, to go to 30 minutes after it, 12 years of 20 minutes, I guess. If I could take a few more minutes. Uh, sure. it, it makes me wonder uh, if you can become too accustomed to a specific time period. In, wow. in other words, I, sometimes at 20 minutes, I feel as though I'm using the uh, uh, internal 20-minute timer to almost outwit myself in a way yeah and again i think that's up to each person as they develop jhana and hopefully you're you know you start out right meaning with shorter sessions but uh twice a day consistently um and really let that um let your own um inner comfort guide you as to when you need to add some time or want to add some time. Of course, you can always ask me or any of the other Dhamma teachers if we think it's time for you. But, you know, and I say that to everybody I teach, and I very rarely get somebody coming back and say, do you think I should increase time? Because um, jhana is one of the most intimate things we can do with ourselves, isn't it? And mm. so we really get to know um, what is right for us. Um, but, you know, again, every now and then somebody will ask me and I'll, we'll talk about it. I'll say, okay, try mm -hmm. and add five minutes or so. Uh, but once you get into a routine of 30 minutes um, twice a day, you know, you're pretty much good to go as far as your jhana practice is. Um, the only difficulty could come from thinking that there's more to gain by longer meditations. And that's not necessarily so, but it can be. You know, you can become overly fixated on um, and take your jhana practice um, kind of out of balance with the rest of the Eightfold Path by thinking just more is better. Mm -hmm. um, most important is that you're able to continue to deepen your concentration. And that will happen with, um, with 30 minute sits, again, consistently twice a day, every day. Um, and, and just because the question might be coming up, um, that is my practice, um, but every now and then, you know, I don't keep track of it, but it's probably 
I don't know, every six weeks or two months, I just feel like, you know, I feel like sitting uh, a little bit longer and I have nothing else to do, you know, so I go ahead and do it. Um, but, but that's kind of, you know, uh, situational, uh, but not part of my practice at all. So, um, I'm certainly, certainly very appreciative of your instructions on this, John. It's, it's, uh, it's a lifesaver. I think so. I, I couldn't manage my life without it. So, hello, Deborah. Good to see you. Hello, everybody. Good to see you too. I um, I'm recuperating from the vacation, <laughs> and I cannot master the thirty minutes. So, I'm quite happy at ten and fifteen. That's excellent. You know. And again, if you're doing that twice a day, that's that's job practice. The length of time isn't all that important, especially right now. So. Thank you, Deborah. John. So let's real quick. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Thanks, you said thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Here's Zach. Hello, Zach. John. There you are. I think last week I told you I was more comfortable with 20 and I think I could have gone for 40 today. Oh, well, so. we're gonna go back to 20 then. Right. No. <laughs> no, just kidding. No, um, yeah, it's all in the practice. Yeah, so. Yeah, and, and as uh, Tracy said, next week 30 minutes might seem just just awful. How could you do it? And for me, it's mostly physical, but yeah, I mean, I haven't had, yeah. Yeah, it's pain of the body, you know. Uh, you know, I think hope nobody hears me grunting and moaning too much here, but you know, it's the way it is. So what? Yeah. I'd rather be meditating and using the, the pain of the body as an as excuse not to. You know, it's just what's going on. Thank you, Zach. Hello, Julia. Hi, John, and hi everyone online. I'm happy to be back with the Sangha. We're happy to have you back. <laughs> um, I'm with Deborah on the timing. Um, I, I am, I'm feeling really good about my personal practice. Uh, so even though I haven't been here, I've been thinking of you all as I settle into my seat, um, generally for 10 minutes twice a day. Yeah. Um, I was really struck in the comments before our jhana practice I don't know why, I, I, I really, I didn't know I needed to hear this, but it really helped me and it will continue to help me what you said about how jhana isn't just the breath, it's also coming back to the breath and that that is part of the work. Yeah. Um, because I was sitting with that frustration so often and I know, you know, it's dukkha and it's human and everybody in this room has to do it all the time, but to realize that it is like baked in to the practice was really helpful. So yeah. thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and, and really thank you for hearing it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, it, it's such an important point of jhana practice that most people don't even really hear it because they just you know, get stuck on the goals. Of always my breath, always my breath, always mm -hmm. my breath. But that's just a, 
that's another really self-referential way of looking at it, setting up the breath as the goal, but the breath is really just what brings us back and unites the mind and the body. But there's a reason for that is because people lose their minds and the minds escape their body and are out there all the time. And that's what causes stress. So to recognize that we've, we're in that sense out of our mind and take a breath and bring our mind back into our bodies, that's everything. And that's the, that's the point that, that Dhamma can be practiced too. It's when my mind is united in its body, not when it's stuck out there or stuck in the concept of how I should be or how that crazy bald-headed guy in front staff said I should be. It's right here and right now. And in this moment, in this moment that Jhana prepares for us, is everything. We're, this is, you know, I say this often, if you want to know what eternity is, you got to be here now for it, right? This is, eternity is right now. It's not projecting yourself into some future. That's, that's just the fabrication. This is eternity. This is where my life is happening. And this is how I can get there. It's really gentle practice. Thank you, Julie. Well, welcome to our sangha. And whatever you'd like to say, we'd love to hear, but you don't have to say anything if you'd rather not. Well, um, I tend to uh, profoundly uh, over-introspect and over-intellectualize. Overaccomplish um, to an extreme that I've rarely seen. Okay, uh, and uh, uh, I've uh, tried many different kinds of meditations. Um, uh, what I most related to what you said today was comes from a guy named Viktor Frankl. His book, Man's Search for Meaning, who went through Auschwitz. His whole family was gassed. He found that uh, the only way to survive was to develop authentic relationships, mm -hmm. trust and love and uh, compassion. And, uh, and uh, otherwise, people died like flies. And uh, um, so, uh, uh, you know, my roommate from college, who was an existential philosophy major, uh, has been writing to me about uh, this. And uh, he's been doing it convincingly, okay, <laughs> which uh, I usually sort of you know, don't take him all that seriously. But he sees that. He's uh, like anyone who's uh, in the last stage of life. Is uh, um, you've had experiences that you know your grandchildren, you, you do, you have things that you can't explain because language is so limited, and, uh, uh, and uh, experiences is the only truth, I believe. Um, uh, so. Uh, uh, I, I found uh, uh, 30 minutes uh, quite difficult. Um, uh, I'm uh, a little confused uh, because um, uh, through uh, the prior stage of life, 
my most effective escape was meditation. Mm -hmm. Always worked for me. But I did, you know, systematic progressive relaxation, you know. Uh, and uh, I believe I'm, it's in my nature to need a certain kind of structure. And uh, so progressive relaxation gave me that structure. Um, this experience did not give me that kind of structure. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious about it. Um, I mean, uh, the part that everyone suffers, uh, you know, only a fool doesn't know that. Uh, so uh, I think uh, that, uh, you know, I identified much more with what you were saying than the experience of, of uh, my attempt at 30 minutes, because that, that was very hard for me. Yeah. Okay. Like the first 10 was okay. After yeah, that, it, it, it became work. Was the instruction to, if you found it overly uncomfortable, to come out of the meditation, or was it more like you felt you had to do it anyway? I think I felt I had to do it anyway. I had to, uh, you know, uh, uh, that's my nature. I mean, you know, uh, you said 30 minutes and uh, I said, okay, uh, that's what I'm going to try and do. Um, Thank you for the feedback. I have to phrase it another way because I, re I really don't want people to think that it's an endurance or anything like that um, and you know we're all meditating together so that and it's interesting that you say the structure because um there is the structure of the method itself of jhana practice but the structure is provided by the uh, the other seven factors of the eightfold path which then defines the framework for our practice and as we integrate all factors of the eightfold path that becomes the structure of our life and all that i can tell you is as as i integrated the eightfold path the real liberation came for me is when i realized that i could no longer harm myself or other people inadvertently in any way and that to me is true liberation i was good to go i didn't have to always be looking over my shoulder. Am I doing the right thing? Am I saying the right thing? Am I going to impress this person or not? Um, and the, um, well, I, I, I would um, ask you um, if you're, if you're interested in learning this deeper, to please keep joining us. And a lot of the, uh, I think a lot of your questions might be answered. Uh, but you do raise some reasonable, um, reasonable questions anyway. The, the Buddha taught, um, again, that you said that only a fool would know that there's, there's no suffering or think that there's no suffering. Um, that's true, but many people still take whatever suffering comes their way as personal. 
And so the Buddha taught the first noble truth as there is dukkha, meaning and dukkha means every level of uh, stress and unhappiness and confusion all the way to extreme physical and, and mental suffering. Um, he described dukkha as this way, birth is dukkha, birth is suffering. He didn't mean that the act of giving birth was difficult. And that's my mother. She kept talking about how difficult that was for me anyway. Um, but what he's saying is, as a consequence of having a human life, there's going to be difficulties. And then he said, uh, sickness is stressful, good. aging and death are. And then he said, not getting what you want is stressful. Getting what you don't want is stressful. And then he would almost always conclude that brief description of dukkha as saying, in short, the five clinging aggregates are dukkha. The five clinging aggregates of form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and consciousness. And without getting into another class on that, that is the ongoing personal experience of stress and suffering. Uh, when we can understand dukkha and understand that as a consequence of having a human life, that's going to occur. It has nothing to do with me. I'm not responsible for any of it, save for what I contribute to it. But I can understand it and so not take anything personally. And that again leads to that great liberation. Of now I know that I can no longer harm myself or others inadvertently or certainly on purpose. And that leads to a mind of ongoing calm. It doesn't answer, um, I'm saying this because of, you know, I don't know that I had the, the intellect that you had, but I think I had some of the same inquiries um, that I wanted to understand you know, the mysteries of the universe and um, any, any, any um, esoteric or, myst or mystical idea that might have floated my way, um, rather than really understood what it meant to be a human being. And until I put my focus on that, um, everything changed. And so again, I'm just, I'm, I'm saying this as maybe a little bit of a clarification as to what we're doing and where you're going with all this. I'm always open to or available for any questions. You know, just send me an email. We can always start a conversation. But I would encourage you to come back to class whenever you can. Okay. It's a pleasure to have you. John, I got to jump. Apologize for leaving early. <laughs> That's okay. I'm glad you made it. Okay. I'll see you soon. Hopefully, yeah. next class. I'll see you Saturday. Great. I'm a teacher, Rob. Hey, Char. <laughs> Yeah, this was a little hard for me after, after dinner. I get drowsy. <laughs> so I got drowsy. Um, but my ex meditation experience has, been, has changed a bit since the retreat. Um, it actually came about from something that Brian said, if I remember it well, he said that both the breath and the distractions are happening at the same level of attention. Yeah, yeah. And um, did I get that right, Brian? Man, I don't know, but it sounds good. 
<laughs> One of those spur of the moment comments. Yeah. <laughs> but I realized that I always looked at meditation as, as the various levels of meditation as being deeper. And um, I remember now. Yeah, this this way of looking at distraction and breath and how they interact um, allows me to, to let them be in my mind at the same time. Because I've always tried to suppress one, well, suppress the, my distractions and, and try and, and keep my attention on, on, the, on the breath, but we kind of try to exclude the distractions. Yeah. yeah. And you know, it's such an inbred thing yeah. that it's so difficult to give up. You know, no, I should be having my attention on the breath. And that makes the whole levels of, of, of meditation much more a, a matter of them being a different quality instead of being deeper than the others. Yeah, they're just, they're just advances in your own practice. The only thing that we're deepening is concentration. Mm -hmm. But that concentration is where? It's, you know, it's right here. Yeah. It's not, it's right there. It, there's no, my mind doesn't go any deeper than my mind. My mind is my mind. That's I can it have is. it well concentrated or, mm -hmm. or continually distracted. Yeah. And the tool that we use the brilliant, you know, this brilliance of this man was, it's your breath. Mm -hmm. Because we get one breath and one thought in the beginning and one breath and one thought at the end. And what we do in between is up to us. We can do it well concentrated or we can be distracted by all the things of the world or the things we think the world should be. And we don't have to do that. We can just recognize that in this moment, I'm either distracted or I'm not. But it's the same level of mind, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I need to, to, to be present with, with the distraction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and instead of, and it's, it's just, I, I can't believe that after all these years, I'm still trying to root out the, the, these distractions. And they're not going to get rooted out. <laughs> well, and, and you have made um, progress in deepening your concentration. I have. Which is... But the point. Yeah, it may have gone faster if I <laughs> tried it the right way. Well, you know, you know that that, that that's not true. No, you, you have mm -hmm. you have applied maximal right effort every step of the way, even mm -hmm. though some of it, um, from my point of view, was just a waste. Now, this kid, you're again not to make you feel better, but you know, you want to look up right effort and. In the dictionary, it's got Brahms' picture and a few others here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's not a matter of, do, let's do it right now. How fast can I get there? It's continually practicing right effort. And you could say right intention. And I don't think that ever failed in you. You might have questioned no, I, I can see the results. Yeah. You know, in, just in, in just my general level of mindfulness. Yeah. Uh, so doing something right. Yeah. <laughs> And doing something right leads to leads to something right, doesn't it? Um, who am I going to next? 
Did I get you too? You did. I think it was. That's how good my memory is. <laughs> okay. Memory. <clears throat> I guess, yeah, there, well, especially for me recently, there are times where we're going to be in an extreme state of distress. Oh, yeah. I'm so grateful that none of us are, you know, in an extreme state of distress like you described with Auschwitz, like unimaginable horrors there, but um, it can feel at times very overwhelming, the distress, and to try to manufacture our thinking or our breathing or, you know, into being a certain way or minimizing our, our distress, that's not what this practice is about, to my understanding, and that's why I love the way you teach it so much, because, and I especially find the five-minute callback sometimes helpful when mm -hmm. I'm really in a state of distress, like on your website, those guided meditations are mm -hmm. so key. Because um, especially when you're just so, it, it provides that structure, like you were saying, uh, Paul, but without being manufactured or forced, you know. And then some of us here are, you know, at a point where they might not need that. But at times, it's just so, those guided instructions are just so helpful and um, I guess also what I've learned in the past almost two years of studying with you all and practicing this method is that, you know, all of those movements or even opening my eyes and just taking a big breath or swallowing or taking a shallow breath, it's all a part of the meditation. I don't have to feel like I need to fight my way through it in like perfect yeah. lotus position, you know, yeah. <laughs> like some other uh, retreats I've been on like long time ago. But um, yeah, that's all of these things about this practice are why it can be, yeah, truly life-saving, you know, at times just a true refuge. So thank you. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for being here this evening. Donna, teacher David. Teacher. How are you? I don't think of this practice as a jhana practice. I think of this as a part of a dhamma practice. So this is my structure. And meditation without a structure is you start here and think like I had an enjoyable, I had a relaxing, I had a difficult but when it's part of a structure the foundation is the sliding scale of right view because all i meditate for is to keep in mind the four noble truths that's my structure that's the guiding bumpers so that's structure and it gives the context to why i sit mm. The mechanics of sitting twice a day, 30 minutes or 10 minutes a day, doesn't matter. It's just one of the eight. So when I think of this practice, I find it hard to take and have a discussion about a jhana practice. Because it doesn't mean anything to me if it's not part of the Dhamma practice. So yeah, that's a good point. As I go through my day. I always roll it back to 
the formal truths. And that gives me that structure. And again, it's totally out of context for you because there's no context. That, that's exactly, yeah, I'm really identifying with what you're Yeah, so your context is that progressive relaxation where my structure would be, I'm looking for insight. I'm looking for understanding of very, three very specific things to give me understanding of why, of course we all have suffering dukkha, but that part that I contribute to, that I can abandon, and that's where I can be calm and yeah. harmless. Yeah. So, again, context. Yeah, thank you, David. Meditation in general, um, I guess you could say, oh, since 2,600 years since Siddhartha's death, but certainly in my lifetime, um, has all kinds of meanings and techniques and methods and goals and um, different structures of how to do this and how to do that, uh, where jhana meditation structure is defined by the Eightfold Path, not by the meditation itself. And it's there, again, just to deepen concentration, not for any effect, not to fix something that might be broken in you. Um, and, and even not for relaxation, although it can bring profound relaxation, but the, te the technique itself is practice for... And that's when you notice it, it's arising, relax, and not relaxed. I'm, I have a little uprising, you know, hindrances. Those things just arise and pass away. Yeah, so if you're not distracted by it. You don't, you don't chase it down and like, oh, I got to figure out why I'm angry at war. Yeah. Why are you angry at war? Well, it's it's serious. <laughs> it's a complicated issue. Very complicated. So <laughs> the, the, the whole, the entire practice itself, beginning with jhana, is um, in relation to a very harsh world, or the world can be harsh at times, even something as awful as Auschwitz. Uh, I didn't get thinking about that, but I didn't think. Yeah. Um, amazing what human beings can do to each other. We have, that's why I say maybe too often in class that we haven't learned anything in 2,600 years. We still, we still treat each other horribly. Um, but the point of that is not to end the class on a really down note. Um, but to, you know, to be hopeful that um, even as awful as we treat each other at times, we're still here. And, you know, there's still an inquisitive part of every human being um, that looks for something that is so gentle, which I see the Dhamma. There's nothing harsh about the Dhamma. It doesn't come after us in any way. It doesn't tell us that we're doing something wrong. Um, but what it does is allow us to become present for this moment. And to live, start living our life from uh, a right view rather than a wrong view. And the wrong view isn't a morally wrong view. It's a, a wrong view in relation to the Dhamma. And either we take life, life personally or we don't. And the only way that I have ever found to not take, you know, this life personally is a well-concentrated mind. And that that really changes everything. You know, Ron was talking about that, but Paul, you were talking about it too tonight. All of us were. 
And so again, I, you know, I tend to close these classes in the same way, but the key to the Dhamma, as I think is the key to our entire human life, is to be very gentle with ourselves. And in so doing, by being gentle with ourselves, we can be gentle with others. And as we continue to develop the Dhamma and learn to end conflict within our own minds, we'll start, we'll cease bringing conflict out into the conflicted world. Um, again, that's not the goal, but that's that's what we will do. Um, Gravity, pardon me. Gravity. Oh, all that I guess say all that over again. <laughs> no. Thanks, David. I always do that. Um, David the whole time. <laughs> so we we finish with um, the words on the Buddha on that of Rikardi and Metasutta. And this is a description of the Buddha giving to the right one. Um, describing the qualities of an awake and fully mature mind. Just gotta find it. There we go. So just take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath. And let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech. They're humble and not conceited. They're contented and easily satisfied. They remain unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. They are peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. They are always mindful that all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. They are always mindful to not deceive another or despise any being in any state. In any state. They abandon anger and ill will with ease, never wishing harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, the wise disciple cherishes all living beings. They radiate kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, they, re they maintain refined mindfulness. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being free from all sense desires, they abandon ignorance of four noble truths. Having completed the path, they are not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Thank you, John. Peace, everyone. Thank you, John. See you, Jane. Good night. Good night. Thank you very Bye. much. Have a great night, everyone. See you all soon. Night, all.
Bye-bye.